Yeah, well, welcome everybody watching online today, and anybody who is watching is watching online because here in the Twin Cities, we are in a major blizzard. Nobody here is here at church. It's the middle of April, and so if you live in Minnesota and you feel a little depressed, you should. I mean, you can, you can feel depressed today or this weekend, but hey, glad you joined us. Uh, I've been thinking about this message for a long time. We are in a series called Seven Words to Change Your Life. Because one word can actually do that. One word can change your life. Last week, Jason focused on the word yes. If you missed that message, I'd urge you to pick that up. Because what you say yes to will absolutely affect your life. But today's word is no. And I think today's word is even more important than yes. No can protect you from harm, can free you from an overly committed life. If you want to be physically fit and financially sound, No will have to be used repeatedly in your life. Uh, Warren Buffett is the wealthiest man on earth, worth $65 billion. Here's what Warren Buffett says about the word no. He says, the difference between successful people and really successful people is that really successful people say no to almost everything. So Buffett says no to risky business deals. He says no to laziness substance abuse, bad relationships, and unnecessary spending. It's fascinating. Buffett actually stops at the McDonald's drive-thru every morning before work as he's traveling to work in his, in his home in Omaha, Nebraska, and he buys a single Egg McMuffin for $2.61 with exact change. Now, he would never buy a Starbucks coffee because that would be too expensive for Warren Buffett. I want to show you a minute and a half video of Warren Buffett buying his sandwich watch. I'm on the way to the office. It's a, all of a five-minute drive. I've been doing it uh, for 54 years. One of the good things about this five-minute drive is that uh, on the way there's a uh, McDonald's, so I'll pick up something. Good morning. Thank you for choosing McDonald's. Go ahead and order whenever you're ready. I'll have a uh, sausage McMuffin with uh, egg and cheese. Anything else? That's it. Thank you. And I tell my wife as I shave in the morning, I say either 261, 295, or 317. And she puts that amount in a little cup by me here, and that determines which of three breakfasts I get. Okay, 295. There's How the you tone. doing, son? Hey, great. You're on candid camera. I see. Hello, everybody. <laughs> when I'm not feeling quite so prosperous, I might go with the 261, which is two sausage patties, and then I put them together and uh, pour myself a coat. Hi, how are you? 317 is a bacon, egg, and cheese biscuit. But the market's down this morning, so I think I'll pass up the 317 and go with the 295. <laughs> Buffett says the most successful people on the planet say no to just about everything. Now, I'm not Warren Buffett. Don't aspire to be a Warren Buffett. But here's what I would say about the word no. I think behind every wise no is a better yes. I believe this to the core of my being. Behind every wise no is a better yes. A few years ago, I was sitting on my front porch when I saw that our favorite tree was being infested by Japanese beetles, just thousands of Japanese beetles. So I called the nursery and bought three different remedies because I was at war with these things. I started with the trap that comes with a scent 
that supposedly smells like a love potion to Beatles, but my first thought was this. This isn't going to work. How can anyone manufacture a love potion for Beatles? And I was very skeptical about this, but I sat on my porch reading the instructions. I opened the package, and instantly I was swarmed by dozens of Beatles. It was a virtual love fest sitting there on my porch. I quickly stuck the trap in the middle of my yard, and within minutes it started filling up with Beatles. Beetle after Beetle flew over to this trap, crashed into the plastic guard, and dropped into the bag to his death. And an hour later... This bag was half full of beetles. Now you would think, you would think a discerning beetle would catch on. You know, you would think that one of them would say, you know what? That bag looks like trouble. Every time one of my friends goes near that bag, he doesn't come back. So this beetle decides to fly over to see for himself. And he sees all of his friends down in this bag just struggling. And he thinks, what are they all doing down there? Are they having a party? Why didn't they invite me? And so he flies in for a closer look. He sees his friends are struggling to get out. He hears them yelling for help, and it looks really, really bad. But then he catches a whiff of the love potion. And he thinks to himself, how can something that smells so good be so bad? You know, his friends yell at him and say, don't do it. Don't make the same mistake we did. But amazingly, he doesn't say no. He ignores their warnings, crashes into the guard, and he drops down into the bag, and his friends in the bag look at him and say, what's wrong with you? Didn't you hear us say no? What a beetle brain you are. But honestly, I think that beetle trap is a picture of what happens to people all the time. All of us know people who can't seem to say no to obvious traps of destruction. They see the trap. They hear the warnings from their friends. They see person after person crash and drop, crash and drop. But they end up doing the same destructive things that their beetle brain friends do. And it's like, who told you to do that? And who are you listening to that would make you think that was a good idea? That has never worked for anybody. Why did you not say no to that temptation? And isn't it true this happens really to all of us, to me as well. Some of our biggest regrets in life go back to a time when we said said yes, when we should have said no. You know, all of us, including myself, if only I'd have listened to my parents instead of my beetle brain boyfriend. You know, if only I'd have listened to my pastor instead of my beetle brain roommate. If only I would have listened to my financial planner instead of that infomercial at 2 o'clock a.m. I mean, we all know people who hurt themselves and hurt others because they said yes when they should have said no. Now, I made a short list of some of the things I've said no to over the years. For example, 27 years ago, I said no to four other churches who asked me to be their senior pastor so that I could say yes to this fantastic church. I say no to treats at our office almost every day so I can say yes to my favorite chocolate brownie and ice cream every night after dinner. I say no to most professional sporting events that are just way past my bedtime. I look at these people, I think, how can they stay up this late? I say no to most organizations and people who ask me to speak or appear or attend at their event. I say no to overspending in debt so that we can save and give and retire someday. I say no to people who want me to tell more hunting stories in church 
And I say no to those who want me to stop telling hunting stories in church. I mean, there's no in there. And finally, I, I said no to Susie, Joyce, Carlene, and Barbie so I could convince Laurie to say yes to me. Gang, I'm telling you, behind every wise no is a better yes. The problem is when you say no to people, you're going to disappoint them. Isn't that true? But you have to learn how to disappoint people. I am a living disappointment. I am. I disappoint people every single day who want me to call them, tweet them, join, whatever, follow them. But if I do those things, I will fail at what I'm supposed to be doing. In fact, in a minute, I'm going to show you three areas that I think every person needs to learn to say no to so you don't crash and burn into the bag of doom. But before I do that, we have to answer a very important question. How do you know what to say no to? You know, if you're a parent of young kids, you will say no a thousand times a day, but there will be three or four major crossroads in every one of our lifetime that will actually determine the rest of your life. Three to four crossroads that you'll be forced to choose between yes or no, and gang, that choice will affect the rest of your life. I want to show you two verses that will help us determine what to say yes or no to, especially at these major crossroads. Psalm 78, uh, God needs to choose a leader, a different leader to lead the nation Israel. And it says in Psalm 78, he chose David and took him from the sheep pens to be the shepherd of his people. And David shepherded them, here's the key phrase, with integrity of heart. Now, later on in life, David had lots of problems. But the verse says God was looking for a leader who had integrity of heart. Now, the word integrity comes from a math term, integer, and integer is a whole number. It's not a fraction. So God was looking for a person whose heart was not fractured whose heart was wholly devoted to God without any fractures. And then in Psalm 86, David actually prays this prayer. He says, God, teach me your ways, and I will walk, keyword, in your truth. Give me an undivided heart. Now, this is the same idea. He prays for an undivided heart, not one that's fractured or pulled in every different direction. And he ties it, he ties it to truth. Because the way you get a heart of integrity is by knowing and living by God's truth. I'm far from perfect. I'm a sinner just like everybody else, but I have tried all my life to build a heart of integrity based on God's truth. So at age 16, when I was just a teenager, at age 16, I actually memorized the entire book of Ephesians in the Bible. And then all through my childhood, I would read the Proverbs. I'd read a Proverbs every day. There's 31 of them, a Proverbs a day. And I just, I just rotate and cycle through the Proverbs every single day. I read through the, the Psalms countless times in the New Testament. And that continues now into my 60s as I'm an older person. Because here's the truth. Knowing and living by God's truth is how you gain a heart of integrity. And as your heart becomes undivided, 100% devoted to God and his truth, you will begin to know 
what to say yes and what to say no to. But here's the problem. You don't suddenly get a heart of integrity when you face a major crossroad. You just don't suddenly have this heart that's built on God's truth. It's why people often make terrible decisions and they crash into the bag of doom because they haven't built this heart of integrity ahead of time that comes from years and years of Bible reading, prayer, worship, mentoring from other godly people so that when the crossroad or crisis hits, they don't know what to do. And sometimes they make bad decisions. I just recently faced a major crossroad that had no clear answer. One of these three to four major crossroads. And so I spent three days of prayer and three days of intense Bible reading. And after seeking wisdom from my wife and a few trusted friends, this decision came down to my heart. The integrity of my heart. And I I prayed, God, I said, show me. Speak to me by your spirit. What are you saying to me? How do you want to move in my heart? I typically don't know what the outcome will be of such an important decision. But gang, there comes a moment when I'm in this three-day intense time of prayer and Bible reading. There comes a moment when God moves in my heart and my heart will move one way or the other and I'll know almost instinctively what I'm supposed to do. I've had three or four of these major personal crossroads that would either send my career, family, staff, and church into greater levels of success or plunge all of it into dangerous levels of loss. And every time the decision came down to the integrity of my heart. So if you want to build a great life that's filled with reward instead of regret, develop a heart of integrity that comes from knowing and living by God's truth. And now here I want to give you three areas where you will have to repeatedly use this word no. And the first one is this, sexual misconduct. I mean, no surprise there, right? The Bible says run. It says run from sexual sin. No other sin so damages a person's life as sexual misconduct. Gang, as a pastor... I have listened to hundreds, if not thousands, of stories of how sexual misconduct has ruined marriages, blown apart families, damaged careers, and did irrevocable damage to the souls and futures of young people. I've grown weary of primetime television that portrays sexual immorality as something that's expected and normal while withholding the truth that it ruins people's lives. As a boy, I memorized verses like Proverbs 7.23 that says, With persuasive words, she led him astray. She seduced him with smooth talk. All at once, he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter, little knowing that it will cost him his life. I would read that verse over and over, and I thought, you know, I never want to be like an ox that's going to slaughter. I'd like to avoid that if I could in my life. And so I said no to sexual misconduct. In fact, when I was a junior in high school, I was the captain, captain of our basketball team, and, and wasn't that awesome back then? And I really liked girls in high school. You know, a mere smile or look from an attractive girl could pull my focus off of basketball for an entire week. I mean, I loved how girls looked. I loved how they wore their hair and colored their eyes. It's all we guys could really think about, and then, gang, it finally happened. 
I was sitting in study hall, never forget this, in our auditorium, when one of the prettiest girls in our class walked up behind me and just dropped a note in my lap, and then she kept walking toward the front in her form-fitting top and jeans. And I opened up this note, and it said this, you and me, anytime, any place." And based on her reputation, I knew exactly what she meant. Pretty steamy stuff for a 17-year-old kid. This was a no-strings-attached invitation to a ride on the wild side that I would never forget. To this day, 44 years later, I can still see that note and remember the rush of emotion that surged through my body. During the next few weeks, she did everything she could to lure me into an encounter that would be essentially overpowering but spiritually damaging. And I knew that whatever my choice was with this girl would affect the rest of my life. Even at age 17, I knew what the Bible said about sexual sin and the consequences that came with it. I knew that it would damage my relationship with God. I knew it would scar my soul. I knew it would embarrass my family, ruin my reputation, and end any chance I had with Laurie Thompson who I was just beginning to date. While my mind was screaming yes to this note, I am so glad that my heart stayed true. My heart was saying, Bob, don't be stupid. Don't throw away your future on a temporary thrill that you will regret. Gang, that single no has led to a lifetime of indescribable yeses. You know who's really glad about that, no. My wife is. My daughter is. My son, son son-in-law, and daughter-in-law are really glad that way back when, 17 years old, I said no to that note. But mostly I'm glad. And God is glad. I know that many of you are thinking, well, Bob, there's no hope for me. I've already failed in that area. But God, I'm telling you, God will forgive you if that's already happened in your life. He can restore you, not without consequences. Sometimes the things we do carry long-term consequences, but you can decide today to start honoring God in this area, and I'm telling you, if you do, God will honor you back. You can start on a new path today. The truth is, some of you never had the benefit of a godly upbringing like I did in this area. never knew what the Bible said about this area of life. And every single day, you know, let's be honest, you're influenced by classmates and billboards and movies and television and a culture that exploits this area to the max. You stack all that up against a bald little preacher trying to warn you against it. I mean, it's just, it's no contest. You know, some of you might be groaning in protest saying, Bob, you're crazy. I mean, you're old. I mean, nobody does this anymore. Everybody has sex before marriage, actually. The number of young people who are choosing to save sex until they're married has climbed to 52%. That's up from 45% 20 years ago. And I am just so proud of those of you who are young, who are making that choice. You are the smart ones. God is going to honor that in your life. But for me, I knew early on, based on God's truth, that I wanted to someday marry a girl who was sexually and spiritually pure, and that meant I had to be sexually and spiritually pure. 
Because, gang, I'm telling you, a wise no will always lead to a lifetime of indescribable yeses. The second area that we need to say no is in, is, is in relational overload. Now, this might surprise you a little bit, but some of you are struggling in life because you have very few, if any, good friends. But the truth is, others of us are struggling because we're trying to maintain way too many friends. And so the relationships that really matter to us begin to suffer because there's just too many people. You know, Jesus, the perfect model of humanity, had 12 friends. And he had three who were really close friends, Peter, James, and John. And he, Jesus was often criticized for this, by the way. You know, he, he would heal a bunch of people. He'd do some teaching. The crowds would build. And then all of a sudden, he would disappear into the hills for prayer and just restoration. People wonder, where are you? We need you. We want you. And Jesus would, you know, it's like, hey. And the perfect son of God spent most of his time with only 12 people. Now, here's a question. It's kind of an odd question, but who do you think will cry at your funeral? Now that I'm 61 years old, I actually think about stuff like that. But author Darren Hardy found that only about 10 people will cry at the average funeral. Hardy writes this. He says, I was floored when I read this. I work hard all my life trying to please other people, but in the end, only 10 people will care enough to cry at my funeral. He found that the number one factor that determines whether somebody will attend your graveside ceremony is the weather. In other words, if it's cold or raining out, half the people won't come to your graveside when they you know, pour the dirt on top. Hardy says, that was all it took for me to stop caring what other people think of me. Isn't that something? So I want to ask it again. Who are the 10 or so people who are going to cry at your funeral? I actually began writing them down for my own sake. You know, my wife, hopefully, will cry. My son, my daughter will cry. Their spouses will cry. My mom would cry, but she's 86 years old. So, you know, I, what are the odds of that happening? My brother and three sisters will, will cry at my funeral, but... Honestly, there's a spouse or two of theirs who'd be like, oh, well. You know, then there'd be a few close friends, and that would be about it. Now, here's the question. Am I giving the best of my time and my life to the people who will cry at my funeral? Too often, I have given my best to people who I don't know and who really don't care about me. So in recent years, I've been saying no to relational overloads so that I can give my best to the dozen or so people who really matter to me. And I was thinking about this the other night. In fact, I woke up uh, one night this week just thinking about how I might show this to you. And uh, this, is called, this is called the law of the inner circle. It's, a, it's an idea that John Maxwell uh, thought about and articulated, but I was thinking about this myself, and really, the 12 or 15 people in my life fall into three categories, and so three to four people, you know, family members, and it's probably a little more than that who would cry, <laughs> cry at my funeral, I hope, 
And then there's three to four people at my workplace, and, and maybe there's a few more than that as well. And then uh, three to four people that I would categorize just in the friendship uh, friendship circle that, you know, that I don't go to work with them, they're not in my family, but they're just really good friends. And sometimes these, these circles overlap a little bit. Sometimes my really best friends are in my workplace or vice versa. Um, by the way, all of these friendships that are in my inner circle, and by the way, the people that are in this circle have the most influence on your life. They will actually determine the quality of your life, and so this is the law of the inner circle, those closest to you. All of these people came to me later in life. So for example, none of my old college friends are in this circle of influence. None of, you know, I have a lot of acquaintances, and we're friendly, and we know each other, and so forth, but a lot of acquaintances who don't make this inner circle, you know, Facebook people, I'm not on Facebook for a variety of reasons, and you know, there's a few relatives, you know, you're, you're related to them, but you know, whatever, they're just not in the circle. And so if you look at your life and you spend all of your time trying to maintain a whole lot of relationships and acquaintances and surfacey stuff, you're going to miss where life really happens. It's the law of the inner circle that these 12 or 15 people who are closest to you will determine your life. And as I invest my life, and this is where I want to spend my life, I'm not going to have a lot of time spending with people outside that circle. Gang, relational overload will steal you know, what God really wants from you in these key relationships that really should, should take most of your time. The third area, real quickly, that you're going to need to say no to are causes outside your calling. Isn't this true? Everybody has a cause that they want you to join. You know, they're so passionate about their cause, and they want you to support them and join it. you got to get on the bandwagon, and everybody's got a cause that they want you to be a part of. Here's my advice. Don't get sucked into causes that belong to somebody else. They're fired up, but let them go do it. Don't get sucked into everybody else's cause. Instead, pour your life into the one that God has called you to. So my calling in life is to teach and lead. I don't organize programs or manage departments or travel the world leading missions groups. Other people do that. I am called to teach and to lead this church. That's my calling, which helps me say no to almost every other cause or calling that other people have. By the way, very few other churches reach people for Christ like our church. That is our calling as a church, to reach others for Christ, so that when people ask us to host, will you host a Christian concert? Or will you, you know, start a Christian school? Or will you start Christian hunting or fishing clubs? We always say no. I mean, frankly, the last thing I want on my deer stands are a bunch of other Christians when I go hunting, I want to do it, you know, alone. I try to get away from people when I go hunting and fishing. Now, if you have a cause that you love, then go do that cause. God has put that passion in your life. Go do that cause. But our calling as a church is to reach others for Christ through weekend teaching, 
music and kids' ministries primarily. That's our focus, and that's the key. If people ask us how you're so successful, that's it. We stay attached to the calling that God has put on our lives as a church. So a few weeks ago, my wife and I joined two other couples to serve over 200 homeless people at the Union Gospel Mission in St. Paul. It's fantastic. And my job just happened to be uh, helping Joe, Josiah, uh, wash dishes. And I'd never done this before in a place like that. Joe is a 24-year-old young man who was homeless uh, since he was a boy. But now he's living in a halfway house, and Joe's dream was to get hired on as the main dishwasher for the gospel, the Union Gospel Mission. I had never run an industrial dishwasher before, so Jay, Joe gave me a quick lesson on how to scrape the food, you know, load and empty the washer, and then stack the dish, dishes. Just as I was getting the hang of this, a young homeless guy who was having his dinner spotted me in the kitchen, and he said, Pastor Bob, I can't believe it. And he came up to the window there, and it turns out he'd He'd made a mess of his life due to a, a, an addiction to meth, but he was becoming sober through this mission. And he happens to watch us online. And so I invited him in the kitchen, which I found out was against the rules. You know, the kitchen supervisor who ran the place was not happy with me about that and for many other reasons. A great guy, by the way, but just not happy with me. Then another homeless guy spotted me and said, Pastor Bob! And so, you know, these two guys were just there and I was, I was trying to listen to their story, and, and just pray with them a little bit. But while I was being a pastor, which is kind of what I'm called to do, to these two young guys, I'd forgotten all about my responsibility as a dishwasher. Finally, Joe yelled at me and said, hey, what about the dishes? And then I stacked them wrong, and Joe was on me for that, and then I put the silverware upside down in the colander, and the kitchen guy was yelling at me for that, and honestly, I was like... I'm a mess. I was just basically in their way. Now, again, it was a great thing to do. And that mission, by the way, is amazing. And we support it financially as a church. And maybe some of you found your calling while serving in places like that recently through our Kingdom Come initiative. But I can tell you, that is not my calling, which is why Acts chapter 6 is so important. In Acts chapter 6, real quick, the disciples were spending all their time serving, serving tables. They were serving the widows in their community, which caused them to neglect their calling to teach God's word. So finally, final verse, they said it this way. It is not right, the disciples said. It's not even right for us to neglect the ministry or teaching of God's word in order to wait on tables. In other words, we shouldn't be waiting on tables because it's taking us away from what God has called us to do. So here's what they did. You can look it up in Acts chapter 6. They appointed seven men who loved serving tables and were actually good at it. So those seven men felt fulfilled. The disciples got back to teaching, and the Bible says the church began to soar and fulfill its mission because everybody was finding their specific cause and calling. So what is your cause? What is your cause? What has God called you to do? And is there anything 
Gang, is there anything that you need to say no to? Some of you need to say no to sexual misconduct so that God can build a new life of purity so you can have a future that you could say, look, that was my old life. Here's my new life. But you got to trust God in this and God will honor you if you begin saying no to sexual misconduct. Others of you need to start saying no to relational overload. I mean, you're trying to maintain all these friendships and you're on social and you're doing all that. And that's, that's great. But at what cost? And are you neglecting somebody that God has put in your life who really matters to you and needs a relationship with you, but you don't have time because you're just all over the map with relationships? Some of us need to start saying no to some friends. They're just kind of on the peripheral. And I know it's hard to do that. But if you want to focus in on a few good ones, that's how you got to do it. And then some of us, you know, what you're calling. Do you need to say no to some things that you've taken on and just it's just not in your area? And it's causing you to fumble in the area that God has called you to do. Gang, this little word, no, can change your life. Because behind every wise no, is a better yes. So, thanks for dialing in today. Next week, our word is thanks. And it's a powerful word. Invite you all back next week. I hope the snow is gone by then. Let's bow in prayer. God, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you that you know each one of us. And Lord, it's hard to say no to things. I pray that you'll give us a heart of integrity a heart that's based on your truth so that we will know what to say yes to and what to say no to. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you are for us. Thank you that we can make mistakes and really screw it up. But you'll still forgive us and you'll still help us get on a different path. God, we love you for that. We need you. We need your wisdom every single day. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Have a great week. God bless.